Chapter 6 This is Michael Johnkind. I was founder of Ecom, Catalyst Adventures, and Religion Health. You know, over the years, I've noticed and learned a few things about the selling process, especially in startup ventures. A few things that come to the top of mind for me are, first, you want to make sure you have an elevator pitch, and you want to have it for multiple audiences. I tell people, you want to hone it, you want to own it. You also don't want to wait too long before you start selling. I've seen non-sales-oriented CEO founders say that they were waiting until they got a salesperson on board. I've heard people say they were waiting on the product or waiting until the offering was ready. You know, the reality is you need to start selling day one, and you'll figure things out as you go. I also tell people you don't want to be a rhinoceros. You don't want to be someone who's got big head and little ears. You want to listen well so that you can adapt the pitch to the need. Who knows? You might learn something you had not thought about. Chapter 6 The Salesman's Hat A startup can survive and fix about any problem, but a lack of sales will end a new venture faster than any other adversity. As previously discussed, getting into selling early on is critical because it will enable you to test your message and value propositions while that early revenue can provide the runway you need to fix all of the other problems your venture will encounter. As an entrepreneur, you will be putting on your sales hat many times per day, even before you start selling your product. You'll need it for fundraising, recruiting, managing, and more. Your ability to understand another person's perspective, effectively communicate your vision, its benefits, and deal with objections to ultimately bring others in line with your thinking is the skill that will make all of your hats fit better. Some entrepreneurs, especially highly technical ones, shy away from wearing the sales hat. For them, the very word salesman conjures up images of an ethically challenged, fast-talking, information-withholding greaseball hovering around a used car lot. It's as if everyone assumes that a salesman's job is to get us to do something we don't want to do or to trick us in some way. On the contrary, seasoned B2B sales executives are master communicators. They possess deep knowledge of the products and services they represent, industry standards, and competitive solutions. They are helpful consultants that take the time to learn their customers' unique needs and then demonstrate how their offering might meet current business and personal objectives. They ask probing questions and skillfully root out unspoken objections so they can be addressed. They would never lie or mislead a customer because they know that the trust and relationships they establish are critical to their reputation and future success. The sales hat is honorable and critically important. The greatest discoveries of science would have wasted away in their labs had it not been for those dedicated messengers heralding a better way. Leaving no stone unturned, they are the most tenacious of all the hat bearers. The sales hat is actually more like a helmet. Those who wear it have strong self-esteems that can endure dozens of rejections and dismissive insults each day without even taking a dent. So what is selling? As a functional definition, I'd say that selling is the art of communicating facts and demonstrating how those facts relate to benefits that are important to your prospect. This may sound simple, 
but there really are a lot of ways to screw this up. Sometimes, we start selling before we know what benefits are important to our prospect or why. Other times, we lose credibility by stating opinions and then trying to present them as undisputed facts. Most often, I see salespeople firing off fact after fact, but forgetting to make the verbal connection as to why their customers should care, i.e., how those facts enable various benefits. Sometimes we are just selling to the wrong person, or there are objections we have not yet discovered and disarmed. The irony of selling is that it is profoundly simple and simply profound. It is a very simple concept, but because it is usually done extemporaneously while gathering information via a real-time dialogue, it requires you to be able to think on your feet and modify your message as you go. This can make even a good communicator forget things and make critical mistakes. Let's begin with a simple but perfect sales combination executed by a table salesperson. This table is made of oak. Oak is one of the most durable woods used in table making. Durable wood is what makes tables like this last a very long time. Notice how the salesperson in the above combination begins by stating facts. When selling, you should always avoid stating opinions. A fact is an unarguable truth of which the vast majority of people would agree. A fact can be independently verified through research or proven by experts. Other facts this table salesperson could have used might include 1. This table is not painted. 2. This table's joints are glued and double-screwed. 3. This table is 6 feet long. 4. This table was ranked in the top 5 in a Consumer Reports review. 5. This table has rounded corners. Each of these facts can be proven and validated. They are not just personal opinions or subject to interpretation. The trouble with stating opinions is that if your prospect does not agree with them, then everything you said from that moment on becomes suspect. Your clients need to trust you. Sticking with the facts and never making an unsupported claim or stating a personal opinion is what gains their trust. It can be okay to state an opinion if the person you are quoting is recognized as an unbiased expert on the subject, but all other stated opinions will get you into trouble. For example, 1. This table is one of the best on the market today. 2. No other table will last as long as this one will. 3. This wood is really strong and durable. 4. Tables aren't made like this anymore. These are all opinions not facts. Sales representatives that start spouting off opinions lose credibility quickly with their prospects, but a well-supported fact followed by a well-connected benefit statement is the classic one-two punch combination in sales. A benefit statement is the communication of a value for the customer made possible by a stated fact. Combined, this construct is a facts-slash-benefit statement. It is the fundamental building block of all sales. Facts should always be followed by a clearly stated benefit for the prospect. The most common mistake made by those new to sales is that they tend to state facts about their product, but then simply assume that the prospective customer will make a connection to a meaningful benefit. This is a huge assumption and very often wrong. You must never fail to connect each fact you use to a benefit that the customer cares about. 
Different customers have different buying motivations, goals, and problems they want to solve. For example, wooden tables do not rust. Wooden is the fact. Rust free is one of the benefits. Unpainted is a fact that could be tied to the benefit of versatility, i.e., the freedom to paint it any color desired. Double screwed and glued legs are facts that could be tied to greater longevity or less maintenance value propositions. Rounded corners could be tied to a value propositions such as safer for small children. Start out by listing all of the facts you can about your product. Now, start connecting the possible benefits each of these facts enables that might be important to your targeted customer. Once these are lined up, you can start to practice your facts slash benefit statements. It is best to connect your fact to its benefit via a bridge or connector phrase such as, which means to you. Other connector phrases are, this is important to you because, and this really matters since. The most important thing about using connectors is that they force you to state a value proposition. Again, I know this sounds very trivial, but I can tell you that not a week goes by that I am not in a meeting being pitched by an entrepreneur or pitching with an entrepreneur that I don't hear facts being poured out without a connected stated benefit. Just last week, an entrepreneur kept telling me that his product had connections to various social media, after which he would pause, smile, and look at me like a doctor who had just found a cure for cancer. The only problem was that I did not see the connection. I had no clue why his product needed to connect to social media or what benefit this fact made possible. Now, I'm aggressive, so I asked for clarity, but many buyers will not. They especially won't if they are in a room full of peers and don't want to appear dumb or uninformed. I've made it a habit for many years to ask customers why they chose to buy or not to buy something. When they choose not to buy, the reason given is usually, I just didn't get it. Most often, this is because the presenter did not make clear connections between facts and relevant benefit statements. Wearing the sales hat means learning to think like your customer, or at least to see things from a customer's perspective. Successful entrepreneurs eat, sleep, and breathe their product or service. They become so immersed in their facts, features, and buzzwords that these become second nature to them and an intimate part of their vocabulary and thinking. Very quickly, they lose the ability to think like a person who is being exposed to all of this for the first time. This is why the discipline of talking in terms of facts slash benefit combinations is crucial. I've taken many sales training classes over the years and read books on most of the major sales methodologies. They all have their strengths and good techniques, but I assure you that remembering to speak in terms of facts and benefits alone as a beginner will get you further down the field than anything else. It was reported last year that over half a million people who did not want quarter-inch drill bits purchased quarter-inch drill bits from Lowe's. Why? because they wanted quarter-inch holes. Remember that buyers don't want your software. They want what your software can do for them. You won't sell much software talking about your software, but you can sell a lot of your software if you focus on what it can do for your customers, i.e. benefits. From cold call scripts to web pages, wearing the sales hat 
means learning to think and talk in terms of value propositions. Sounds pretty simple so far, but here's where it gets a little tricky. All value propositions are not weighted the same by all prospects. If you go on and on about how your product has superior resale value and your prospect is never planning on reselling it, then you are going to come across as irrelevant and out of touch. Talking is the easy part of sales. The hard part is listening. Before you fire off all those well-polished facts slash benefits value propositions, you had better make sure that you targeted your missiles correctly. You achieve this by listening first to your prospective customer and by asking probing questions. Back to the table example. So why is it that you are looking for a wooden table? Do you have small children? Will they be using the table? How often would you need to seat eight people? What did you like or not like about the table you are replacing? You don't have to sell a sophisticated product to be a sophisticated salesperson. By asking these questions, you will not only be able to connect your facts to the right benefit statements, you will also start to gain the trust of your prospects who begin to see that you really are concerned about getting them what they need rather than just making your quota. The table example is simplistic. In the real world, many factors come into play, from budget to infrastructure to political considerations. But taking the time to really understand your customer's needs is how you will position yourself as a trusted consultant, rather than a manipulating salesman. Keep in mind that a single fact can be used to support several different value propositions. Linking a fact to the wrong value proposition is not only unhelpful, it can also actually bring up new objections. I was once training a team of salespersons how to sell their instructor-led certified Oracle training classes. At 700 pages, it was by far the most detailed and comprehensive Oracle courseware available at that time. During the live sales demonstrations, I encountered two very different type of prospects. One was concerned that the class would be too difficult and that it would cover too much material for him to keep up. To this prospect, I used the facts slash benefits statement on the following page. Fact. Our Oracle courseware has over 700 pages of material. Connector. This is important for beginners like you who are new to Oracle because... Benefit. You will be able to look up anything the instructor covered that you may not have fully understood and review the concepts in detail with examples at your own pace each evening after class. The second prospect had the exact opposite objection. He had been using Oracle for almost a year and felt that an introductory class would be too basic for his intermediate skill level. To this prospect, I used the following facts slash benefit statement. Fact. Our Oracle courseware has over 700 pages of material. Connector. This is important for self-taught engineers like you who may not have had a thorough systematic introduction because benefit. With that much material to cover, even an intermediate Oracle administrator is going to be challenged and constantly presented with concepts and techniques that are new. Notice here how I used the same fact with both prospects but tied that fact to completely different value propositions based on their individual concerns. 
It would have been impossible to target these specific needs without first asking probing questions and taking the time to understand each prospect's specific needs. Firing off facts-slash-benefits statements before listening to and understanding your client's needs and concerns is like a hunter shooting his gun into the darkness and hoping to hit something for dinner. He might succeed, but most often he or she is just scaring away the game. It can sometimes be difficult to get clients talking about what they need and why. I always try to have a few good probing questions ready to go. Here are some examples. Why are you looking for a software product like ours? How are you currently doing this? What isn't working well with your current solution? Why is that important? What are your goals here? Which of those would you say is most important? And what did you like about that solution? Who else will be using this product? What are their concerns? What does that mean for you personally? A dominant buying motivation is the main thing a prospect wants to gain or the most important value they seek to achieve through a purchase. Although there is often one predominant pain point, there are usually multiple other buying motivations, especially in B2B software purchases. The art of sales is in identifying and uncovering all of these motivations and concerns. Parroting is the technique of restating the buying motivations you think you heard back from your prospect. This is important for two reasons. The first is to make sure you got them right. So what I hear you saying is, correct? Remember that most people are not good communicators. I've repeated back word for word what prospects said to me before only to have them say, no, that's not what I said. Parroting is important because it helps you listen and it ensures that your prospects have communicated what they really want. Once you have prospects acknowledging a list of goals, ask them to prioritize the list as to which motivations slash goals are the most important and why. The second reason for the discipline of parroting is that it communicates to your prospect that you are listening and care about what they said. You are also communicating that you really want to get it right and understand your client's needs. This technique is critical to establishing trust and a rapport with your prospect. Don't underestimate how important this is to the sales and relationship building process. Whereas a buying motivation is what the prospect hopes to gain from a purchase, a buying objection is a concern, fear, or any reason why a prospect may not want to commit to your product or solution. A seasoned salesperson is an expert at rooting out all dominant buying motivations and objections. If you uncover and overcome every objection, then you will make a sale. Sales are most often lost because of undiscovered objections that are never spoken or rooted out. Again, probing questions are key, such as, what features do you need that aren't included in my product? Or, what do you like better about their, a competitor's, solution? It's the objections you don't know about that will most often cost you the sale. Objection handling is also a bit of an art. It's very easy to work yourself into an adversarial role while dealing with an objection. Here's an example of a sale going south because of botched objection handling. Client. Your product is more expensive than other solutions. 
Salesperson. No, it's not. Client. I know of at least two others that charge less for the same thing. Salesperson. You are mistaken. Client. Hmm. Unfortunately, I've witnessed this particular calamity many times, and it is like watching a train wreck in slow motion. It's been said that the only way to win an argument with a customer is to avoid it. But how do you tell a prospect or client that he or she is mistaken without starting an argument? Even if you prove that you are right, you will have most likely offended the prospect who now no longer wants to buy from you, i.e., won the battle, but lost the war. When a client challenges something you've said or you hear an objection in general, a flashing red alarm should go off in your head as if a bomb has just been armed. In fact, it has, and you must first disarm the bomb before you can proceed. When a client states an objection or contradicts a statement you have said, there is only one way to deal with it effectively, and that is to disarm the bomb. Here's how you do it. First, you have to agree with something the client said, or at least affirm the client's right to feel or think that way. This disarms the bomb and gives you an opportunity to gently make your counterstatement. This technique is best learned by example. Client. Your product is more expensive than other solutions. Objection. Salesperson. It certainly can appear that way. Agree slash disarm. Salesperson. In fact, a lot of my best customers said the exact same thing before they added up all the extra modules they'd need to buy in order to get the same functionality included in our base product. Counter. Another example. Client. There's no way my team would do all of these steps. Objection. Salesperson. Our best practice does appear to add more steps initially. Agree. Disarm. Salesperson. That's why we include an extensive training program to ensure that your team realizes how a little extra work on the front end will save hours of extra work later on. Counter. Other good disarming phrases that have served me well. I certainly understand how you might feel that way. It does appear that way at first. Some of my best customers have said the same thing before. Yes, you are correct that in some cases, there is an issue like that at first. You are correct. That can be a problem. That's why we... You get the gist of this. A gracious disarming counter shows respect for your prospect's feelings and that you have the maturity and discipline to stay focused on your goal. You will discover that you tend to hear the same objections over and over again, so make sure that you create an objection-handling document with your best disarming responses and counters. Require your sales team to memorize this document and test each one of them via role-playing. Involve your sales team in this process by asking them each week if they have heard any new objections that should be discussed and added to the document. Remember that knowing the facts about your product and potential benefits is just the foundation of your sales process. You've still got to find the right decision makers, determine dominant buying motivations, ask probing questions, establish trust, and root out, disarm, and counter objections effectively. There are several more advanced concepts that will sharpen your sales skills, but for now, I'll just mention this one. 
Buying motivations can either be organizational or personal. Remember when you're selling that your decision makers are representing both their organization's goal and desires, as well as their own personal goals and desires. For example, organization's goal. A better inventory system will help us work much more efficiently. Personal goal. A better inventory system will get those guys in accounting off my back. Personal goal. Less inventory problems means I might get home by 5 o'clock some days. Personal goal. Fixing these inventory problems will get me noticed and maybe promoted. This is where the science and art of sales move into a gray area. Sometimes this is the elephant in the room that no one mentions. Corporate buyers don't want to admit that personal goals are part of their thinking and decision-making, but they always are. If you can tactfully figure out personal goals and tie benefit statements to meeting them, then you will be way ahead of the game. Anytime you can engage someone in both professional and personal conversation, you are well down the path of creating a lasting relationship. Probing questions of a more personal nature often work here to identify personal dominant buying motivations, such as, So this is a real problem for you personally. It sounds like the current system is taking way too much of your time. When that happens, does everyone blame you for it? It seems like this could cause some pain points for you personally as well. Establishing trust is also a critically important part of any large account sales process. Buyers are always in the process of asking themselves questions while you were talking. Is this salesperson telling me the truth? Can this person deliver what has been promised once I'm committed beyond the point of no return? Implementing new enterprise software and changing established workflows is always a risk. Usually, a lot of time and money is at stake if things don't go smoothly, and a really big batched install can cost an executive decision maker his or her job. Sales employees need to be sensitive to the fact these executives are always searching for clues to determine if you are trustworthy. The main thing to remember when establishing trust is that little things don't just mean a lot. They mean everything. You are always communicating something. If you tell a prospect that you will send the proposal over tomorrow, but then you get busy and don't send it until the next day, then you are communicating that you may not be trustworthy. If you are even a few minutes late for an appointment meeting or forget to mention an additional small cost, then you are communicating that you may not be trustworthy. Most salespersons who lose a sale or even an entire account because of a lack of trust never even realize what they did wrong. Establish trust through the little things. When a client asks you for something, you should see it not as another inconvenient task on your busy to-do list, but as a precious opportunity to demonstrate trustworthiness. I even try to engineer opportunities to demonstrate my trustworthiness to prospects. For example, I'll sometimes commit to do something at a very precise time, like 11.10, and then I will set an alarm so I can do it at exactly that moment. Look for ways to obligate yourself to a client so that you can demonstrate your dependability. I've had clients ask me for a certain document that I had in my notebook, but rather than just handing it over on the spot, I commit to send it to them as soon as I get back in my office. 
Once in a while, even if you know the answer to a client's question, tell the client that you will research that and let them know so that you can demonstrate that your word is your bond. Don't forget the power of an understatement. If the client is really excited about your solution, it's a good time to do some expectation setting. Maybe point out some of the things that might cause delays or features that don't quite work the way they should yet. This may sound counterintuitive, but you gain huge amounts of trust when you disclose minor flaws in your solution. When asked if my company would be there when needed, I always took the opportunity to make it personal, looking my client in the eye and saying, I would be there, even giving them my cell and home numbers. Many times I've asked customers why they chose to go with my little startup rather than a big competitor. Was it our better pricing or superior functionality? No. Most often the reply was something along the lines of, I don't know. I just felt like you would honor your commitments and that we could trust you. They felt that way because I earned their trust through paying meticulous attention to the small things. I think this should go without saying, but always be nice. In your flurry of activity, stress, and urgency, remember the human element. A startup is all-consuming, and a lot of stress can make you oblivious to the feelings of those around you. It takes a conscious effort to stay centered. Take a moment to learn something personal about your clients. A little small talk is important. People buy from people they like, and they like people who seem interested in them. Being all business may be professional, but it is not human enough for most buyers. It is not our logic, but rather our humanity that connects us all and sparks that innate desire that most people have to want to help others. In the early 1990s, I was trying to start a company. It was an applicant tracking human resources platform that ran completely in a browser, something almost unheard of at the time. I was having a hard time getting venture capitalists excited about my technology because they had never heard of Enterprise SAAS, Software as a Service, architecture. No matter how I explained the benefits and assured them that this model was going to become the norm, they just kept saying that they did not get it. Or, why do you want to rent your software? I did, however, find an angel investor who said that he would put in the 300K I needed to finish building the platform and launch the company, but only if I could bring him a letter of intent from a Fortune 500 company saying they'd buy it. I had been pitching a large pharmaceutical company on the concept, hoping to get a beta customer lined up for when the product was ready. With offices all over the world, my vision for this product was exactly what they needed but I knew that it was an incredibly long shot to get them to commit to an unfinished tool that they could not even try out. Reluctantly, they decided to form a committee to explore this new approach and make a recommendation. I was to meet the committee members for the first time on a Monday. The Saturday before my first meeting with the committee, I had tickets to go to a large outdoor concert. I could only afford the cheap seats on the far side of the stadium, so I brought my binoculars. I was really looking forward to a couple of hours of relaxing downtime. Shortly after I sat down, a single mother with two small children sat down next to me without saying a word. As the concert began, the kids became really disruptive. They were upset that they could not see the stage and wanted everyone around to know it. 
I found myself getting angry because I just wanted to relax and hear the music. But rather than saying something rude, I decided to let the kids take turns using my binoculars. Before long, the kids were sitting on my knee and having a good time describing everything they could see in detail. When the concert was over, the bedraggled mother spoke to me for the first time to say what seemed to me a heartfelt thank you. Stay with me here. I'm getting to the point. Monday morning, I put on my best suit, and as I rode up the elevator to a conference room to meet the committee for the first time, I felt like a man who had picked a battle that he could not win. The door opened, and there stood this same mother of two, introducing herself to me as the chairperson for the committee established to evaluate applicant tracking solutions. I'll never forget the surprise on my angel investor's face the following month when I slid a $500,000 letter of intent for a product that did not yet exist across the desk to him. That company later sold for $100 million in cash. To this day, I wonder if that company would ever have gotten started had it not been for a simple act of kindness at an outdoor concert. I never forgot that lesson. If I had been in a bad mood, I might have really blown it that day. They say it's better to be lucky than talented. I don't believe in luck, and I don't believe that nice guys always finish last. But I do know that helping the people around you creates an atmosphere where they want to help you if they can. My point is simply this. It doesn't cost you to be nice, and it might amaze you how often those random blessings come around to bless you back. I once helped a guy with a flat tire in a parking lot before going into a building for my presentation only to find that he was the company's CFO. I once let a contract employee out of his contract because of a personal issue. Years later, he was in a position of authority at a big company I desperately needed as a beta customer, and guess what? He returned the favor. In spite of my existential bias, I can't help thinking that the Hindus may have the whole karma thing right. It goes around, and it comes around, so never miss an opportunity to enact a kindness. That's enough philosophy. Let's get back to sales techniques. The best techniques in the world won't be enough if you aren't selling to the right decision maker or if there are decision makers and influencers you have not discovered. In a large account sales cycle, there can be, and most often are, several decision makers and those who influence the buying decision. For enterprise software purchases, decision makers fall into various categories. There's the technical decision maker, the business decision maker, and the financial decision maker, not to mention many influencers. Each type of decision maker has his or her own criteria and primary buying motivations. Business decision makers generally want to know how effectively your solution is going to solve their business problem. How will it be implemented and adopted by staff? How will current workflows have to be modified? Will staff work faster, more accurately, and or more efficiently? Technical decision makers usually have very different concerns. How difficult will this be to implement and support? How will data be migrated from current systems? Does this solution meet current security and scalable standards? Will systems need to be modified in support of this? Financial decision makers want overall corporate value. They want the best value for the lowest price. 
They are less concerned about a single department's business processes as they are about the overall company bottom line. What is the return on this investment? Will it generate saving through staff reduction? Will it free up working capital? Does it support a larger strategic vision? The rule is, know your audience. A departmental business decision-maker may not really care that your solution is less expensive than others on the market. His or her metric may be overall production slash output. They may want the best possible solution regardless of cost. A technical decision-maker may want the least invasive solution possible and could care less about features and functionality. Many times you have to get a yes vote from each type of decision-maker to win an account. A veto from any one of them can send you packing. Sales fundamentals still work perfectly, even in a complex sales cycle. You just have to apply them in multiple places at once. First, make sure you know who all of the decision-makers and influencers are. If there's a committee, then get all of their names and titles. Next, define each vote you need and what's important to each decision-maker. Some have to be actively won over, while others need only to be neutralized or pacified. You will also need to start mapping who the influencers are to each of your primary decision-makers. An influential end-user may have the ear of your business decision-maker. End-users may not give a flip about improved accounting accuracy or the cost of your system, but they may care a great deal about removing a particular aggravating or awkward function in the current system. They will have personal motivations as well. Find out what they really hate about the current system and show them how your solution addresses that. The lower the person's position in the organization, the more you should focus on personal buying objectives. You have to figure out how to get all of the votes you need. Each pitch needs to be custom-made for that decision-maker. The same fact-slash-benefit that wins over one decision-maker might get you a veto from another. For example, a financial decision-maker might love the fact that your software will enable him to downsize 20 full-time employees. But if you tell an influencer that employees in his, her department may get downsized, it's not going to be considered a benefit. They will probably come up with some other reason why your software solution won't work when they report to your business decision-maker. But the real reason will be your failure to address a personal objection. Being successful in sales is much more complicated than most people think, but it's not too difficult once you learn to think in terms of benefit statements. Ask probing questions and figure out what each person's buying motivations and objections are. Remember that once you have a yes vote, stop selling. If you keep talking, you run the risk of creating an objection that otherwise would not exist. Take notes. Map out your large account strategy. Remember your sales fundamentals and you'll be fine, no matter how long or complex your sales cycle may be. That concludes this chapter of The Startup Hats, Master the Many Roles of the Entrepreneur by David Gardner. If you like this chapter and you can't wait for the next one in a week, you can download and listen to the entire audiobook on Audible. Startup Hats is sponsored by Forrest Firm, a full-service law firm and certified B Corporation with offices across North Carolina and clients around the globe.
The Forest Firm mission is to provide legal services that consistently exceed client expectations, create healthy, sustainable work environments for professionals, and positively impact the communities where they live and work. For more information, head on over to forestfirm.com. For more information on the work that David Gardner is doing with his venture capital firm, visit cofounderscapital.com. Startup Hats is a production of EarFluence and read by me, Dave Clark. You can find more information on EarFluence podcast at earfluence.com.